Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Angel, the podcast. We are in season four, and it's our first episode. We have an incredible guest, Sarah uh, Cannon is with us, and she talks about her investments in the future of work, productivity tools, business intelligence, uh, and she works at Index Ventures. We also get into a lot of politics, a lot about gig economy, remote work, uh, and it's an incredible, incredible episode. She previously worked with uh, the Obama administration at Google uh, doing investments and is now at Index Ventures. Stick with us. It's an amazing episode. Season four of Angel is brought to you by LinkedIn. You already know LinkedIn is the world's largest professional network. It's also a better way to find great talent. Go to linkedin.com slash angel and get a $50 credit towards your first job post. Assure is the leading provider of special purpose vehicles and fund administration with over 5,000 completed transactions and $2.5 billion under management. Angel listeners can get 20% off their first SPV at assure.co slash angel. And Zeus Living gives you a place to come home to for trips of 30 days or more. Stay with Zeus for beautiful, thoughtfully furnished housing. Go to ZeusLiving.com slash Angel for $200 off your first booking. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of Season 4 of Angel. This is the podcast that's the sister podcast to This Week in Startups. It's also the podcast that complements my book, Angel, which you can go to angelthebook.com, search on Amazon. Now in Chinese, Japanese, Taiwanese, um, English, obviously, and a bunch of other languages. Uh, thank you so much for reading the book. For those of you who are angel investors or early stage investors, syndicate investors, um, this is a great podcast for you because you're going to see what downstream investors think about. And it's very important in the role that I play as an early stage investor to really play nice with and understand what drives a later stage investor. So for this season, season four of Angel, we're actually not interviewing angel investors. We're interviewing people with over $1 billion in assets under management, AUM. And one of the great firms uh, here in Silicon Valley and of the last uh, cycle is Index Ventures. I know Danny Reimer uh, and a bunch of the team over there, and we were lucky enough to get Sarah Connor. Sarah Cannon, not Connor. You did are it. You, are you Sarah Connor? I am Sarah Connor. <laughs> the Terminator. Yeah, exactly. It's a common, it's a common error. Yeah, you get it a lot? Yeah, I do. Uh, and Sarah I think it's because I'm intimidating. Uh, is it? I feel it. I'm feeling like you could at any moment just take a rocket launcher exactly. out. And, Remember that. Yeah. Uh, I just saw the new one, and I actually enjoyed it. It was a little too topical. Like, a little too close to home? Well, no, they like literally- I haven't seen it. it nobody did. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, because it's just great to see literally Linda Hamilton is just so amazing in that role. I could just watch her in that role without Terminators. Um, but they literally have a huge part of it have to do with like the border and people being jailed at the oh. border. And you're like, okay, we get it. Terminator, oppression, Trump, the border. Uh, but it's actually an interesting segue. Um, you worked as an economic advisor to Obama. I did. Uh, and so how does working for Obama lead to becoming a venture capitalist. That's, and welcome to the pod. Well, thank you very much for having me on the pod. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad we got to get right into the Terminator. You know, a personal dream is actually to be the first Jane Bond. So I was yeah. hoping, yeah, yeah. So not it's Terminator, but Bond. I, I hope soon. Yeah. I, I'm waiting, and maybe they've called while we've been in here. I'm trying to figure out what is the proper age to watch James Bond with my daughters. 
because if you watch some of the old ones. Yeah, no, they are a little racy. They're pretty racy. It was a family tradition on Thanksgiving to watch the TBS Bond Marathon. Yeah. Um, so I would say like never too young, but maybe there's just some scenes you want to take them for a snack or something. Exactly. Quick, quick fast forward. Yes, uh, exactly. Yeah, that's not going to work with my 10 year old. Um, uh, so tell me, how did you go? How did you get into the Obama? How did you work with Obama? And then how did you get into Metro? Yeah, not an, off- not an obvious path. Not one you hear often. Um, no, never. Yeah. Uh, actually. Good, yeah. good. Nice to be a, a contrarian. Um, so the way that I got into the Obama administration originally um, was sheer passion. Ah. So I was working another job, but really wanted him to be elected president. So I was moonlighting. So between ah. like 2 a.m. and 5 a.m., I was helping to wave people into the transition building in Washington, D.C. And then they said, oh, Sarah, wait, you know how to do math. And I, there's a crisis going on. What's going on with housing prices? And so I thought, well, surely I have no idea. And right. nobody did at that period in time. But you do enough math for enough people and then ended up getting an internship. Oh, wow. um, and then eventually picked a fight with Larry Summers. Oh, wow. I know who, Larry. Uh, you do. Yeah. Lucky you. Yeah. Can't wait to bring up your name. What's he going to say? He's going to say uh, she's like, hopefully he'll say she's like a goddaughter to me. Oh, that great. is now the case. At the time, that was not the case. What was the fight over? Um, or the difference of poverty. Okay, let's all pack it. So we were, I managed to get this internship where I hadn't, I didn't have to pass Larry's test yet. And then he had a lunch with the interns, which I'm sure was his favorite activity. But actually, Larry spends a lot of time meeting with students. So he met with the interns and the thing closes and he says, any other questions? And I said, you know, I, yeah. And, and he said, yes, in the back. And I was like, well, well, I don't think we're doing enough for poor people. Like, I just don't think, and this is Barack Obama, he stands for this, like, we're doing all these macroeconomic policies, but we're not doing anything for poor people. And so he said, and he was like, all right, well, what do you think we should be doing? And I was like, these place-based policies, and he goes, no, 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 these are bad ideas. Sarah, have you studied the research? Like, the research tells you, like, a lot of these don't work. I mean, Larry's- Well, what was your number one idea that he thought was bad? Place-based policies. Place-based policies. What does it mean? So it means that in a city like Detroit, for example, Uh when you have a geographic area where there's been a lot of economic activity that's left. Right. Let's have a policy to incentivize people to stay in Detroit, right? Ah. To have tax incentives and job credits and all these things to strengthen the local economy. And Larry's argument was historically these haven't worked very well because you want economic activity to move around, right? And right. so if there are better opportunities in Cleveland, you don't want to be tying them to Detroit if there are opportunities in Cleveland, which as an economist is a very rational argument. Yeah, you, you want to let the marketplace decide where is the best place for work to be and traditionally work was in places where resources were, I guess, or ports were. And today it's, it's where young people who are highly educated and skilled want to live. Right. And industries changed. And so industries changed. What was needed for the manufacturing industry is different than what is needed for the so next generation. So why do you have this like uh, position that people should stay in places where the their businesses are not naturally inclined to be? So the economic rationale for that is that place has some value okay. that like we're not people probably aren't going to leave Detroit en masse. And it's actually not a fair thing to abandon a whole population. Oh. And maybe it's a good idea to try to incent some economic activity in places where people live because you don't want them to deteriorate massively. Got it. So it's compassion. And in a way, um, maybe even a little bit of tradition or. Well, but I also think like- economics because the people I mean, the, Larry's argument would require people to move efficiently. But people make decisions about where they live, not only because of their job. Maybe you love Detroit. Maybe your family's there. Got it. So I think there's a little bit of like the realism of people aren't all going to move to the jobs. They will in some amount, but not everybody. And it's actually become, this is another issue uh, that I've been reading about because I like to read about what people like you and Larry Summers are talking about. 
is people don't have the ability to move anymore because they don't have savings in one part. So people who are on the lower uh, or up and comers don't have the money to move to that job. And if they did, that would be a big unlock. But the places where the jobs are are so expensive that you have a compounding factor. There's jobs in LA. There's jobs in, you know, San Francisco. There's jobs in New York, but, or Seattle, but they can't afford to move. And they certainly can't afford to move to a place where the real estate and the cost of living is so expensive. So that is one of the big unlocks. I actually heard people say, we should uh, be uh, giving people relocation money. The government should if they can get a qualified job or a tax break based on relocation uh, because of that argument. And I don't know if it came out of your argument with Larry, but I have, you've read this. Jason, I wish we were friends then. So I could have phoned a friend into my argument with Larry Summers um, to make some of these arguments. And it's true. Like the average American doesn't even have $400 in savings. Like how are you going to engineer a move? So, but that was Larry's. So that was the thing that I was trying to argue for, but I was really just, it was a more compassion. We need to do more for the poor. And he kind of said, Sarah, the best thing you can do is grow the economy. Right. right? At a, and if that happens, the system will work and it will benefit everyone. So and it, has he turned out to be right, given the fact that we're in the lowest unemployment and wages have raised the most under Trump in our lifetime? So he was right because I did do all my research on this because I felt embarrassed that I was wrong about the research showing growth. That yeah. is true. But I would also argue, and this is Sarah's view personally, that yes, like the S&P is performing really well, but wages aren't doing as well. And there has been, I think, a decoupling between them, how the markets are performing and how the average person Absolutely. is doing. Yeah. And you're seeing that show up in politics in all kinds of ways. Yeah. Um, so I think, yes, Larry was right. That's what history has shown us. Um, but I also think there are consequences, which you would agree with, too, to not doing something to make sure everybody's life is actually getting better. Yeah. I mean, the rising, m- the minimum wage going up um, has certainly helped. Um, I'm not sure closing the borders has helped, but there is a perception that closing the borders leads to people hiring more Americans, more scarcity than uh, the market then rises. Do you believe we should be closing the borders in order to drive up wages here, or that we should have open borders or somewhere in between? Well, this I love that you walked into high-scale immigration. This was actually when I was at the White House. One of the things that Larry tasked me to look at uh-huh. um, was what should we be doing for our high-scale immigration programs? High-scale immigration. High-scale. So oh, high-scale. High-scale. So people yeah. who had... Well, PhDs exactly. Or, yeah. So we had a you should staple a green card to a PhD if you're educated in a U.S. school. We had a whole bunch of great proposals, um, which unfortunately did not get passed because immigration is a very polarizing. Uh, Even Obama topic. had a hard time with the concept of bringing in high skilled foreigners because of the perception in middle America that they're taking American jobs. Well, a lot of the challenge, too, is that Obama was very, because it's actually the time that I met um, Obama. So we, well, I worked for him, but we actually, one of the most kind of the time, most time I spent with him was discussing immigration. Mm. And he was giving a very impassioned speech about the DREAM Act. And his team was saying, you know, I'm not sure, like, polling-wise, this is going to help you. And he was like, but this is why I'm president. Mm. And I can convince the American people. And then gave an impromptu speech in the Roosevelt Room. Mm. And I was one of these moments where I'd worked for him for years at this point. And I was like, it's real. Everything that I thought is true. And he asked me my opinion. And I had done this research, um, which you asked about, which is, what is the economic impact of immigration? So I looked at all the studies that have been done over this over many decades, and the research does say that immigrants are actually a boon to the economy, right? Obviously. Like we, they pay a lot in taxes. They do a lot of work and new jobs. It's definitely beneficial to GDP. And like that's been documented. There is a negative impact for a certain population that they, when they come in, will compete directly for those jobs, then that will have a negative impact on that population. So then you think about, okay, from a policy perspective, 
what can we do for that group of people? Yeah. Um, so you do need to be mindful, but net net, like immigration, yes, I'm absolutely for it. All right, when we get back from this quick break, <laughs> I want to know how you jumped from Obama to venture capital. When we get back on Angel, the podcast. Hiring the right people is one of the best ways to help grow your business. You know this, but it shouldn't take your time away from all the other priorities of running your business. With LinkedIn Jobs, it doesn't have to. They know what they're doing. Their system is amazing. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and the soft skills that you're looking for so you can find that right person quickly. LinkedIn looks beyond the work skills and puts your job post in front of qualified candidates who match your business requirements perfectly. Things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability. Now you're wondering, how do they know all this? Well, because they have hundreds of millions of members and they have all the data. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post is seen by the people you want to hire. People with the skills and the qualifications and the other interests that will help you grow your business. It's no wonder that a person is hired every eight seconds with LinkedIn. You know this because you're on there all day. When you have to hire somebody, you go onto LinkedIn, right? It's also why companies rated LinkedIn Jobs the number one hiring platform for delivering quality hires. And quality hires is what it's all about. You use LinkedIn, you see all those great resumes. Now you got to use LinkedIn Talent Solutions and you're going to get $50 off right now. Just visit linkedin.com slash angel, linkedin.com slash angel, and you get $50. Again, that's linkedin.com slash angel to get $50 off your first job posting terms and conditions apply because they're giving you the 50. There's got to be some terms and conditions. All right. Thanks again to LinkedIn Talent Solutions. You have been a great supporter of the podcast and a great tool for all of the 200 companies that I've invested in. All of them use LinkedIn to find great candidates. If you're a startup, I beg of you, go to linkedin.com slash angel and get that 50. Okay. Let's get back to this amazing episode. All right. Welcome to Angel Season 4. We're back. Thanks to the partners who made uh, Angel Season 4 possible. I really appreciate it. On behalf of the fans of the pod and people coming up, this podcast is seen by hundreds of thousands of people, each episode, millions a year. We couldn't do it without the partners. And for those of you listening, if a partner gives a code, please use it. If a partner uh, and you're on Twitter and, and you use their product, go ahead and say something nice and say you learned about it from at Jason on at TWI Startups. The partners see that. Um, and it makes them come back year after year uh, and support the pod and, and allow us to have great guests like Sarah Cannon on the podcast. She's Sarah R. Cannon on the Twitter. Are you active on Twitter? I'm not. It's just I little. Need, I need to be. Do I'm you? An app, I'm an app, active consumer. Well, one of my, I invested in this great company and he was like, Sarah, you have to get on Twitter. You're nowhere. This is an embarrassing story. I knew that my Twitter was hacked. A childhood friend was like, someone's posting cat photos on Twitter. And I happen to know that you hate a likely, cats. A likely story. Are you a I, cat lady? No, I hate cats. Oh, really? I hate cats. Thank God. I don't. My sister's a veterinarian. I love humans. She loves animals. We think it was divided 100% okay. in, in either case. So, <laughs> no, it definitely wasn't me. So, oh. no. But I, I will be more active on Twitter in the future. Be careful what you wish for because it is an addiction, especially for smart people who like to engage on topics that are, like, topical. Like, literally, my Twitter now is outpacing my email usage. Interesting. Uh, and so I, was, I spoke at, actually, Stanford GSB recently, like this week, in fact. And they were like, how do we, I emailed you, how do you get, and I was like, just DMs are open on Twitter. And like, if you, if you reply to me with an intelligent comment 10 times, I'm going to follow you back and know who you are. I don't know why more people don't do this. All right, there's a goal. It's a pretty easy goal. Um, now I know you were accepted to both Harvard's MBA program and Stanford's. 
Uh, and uh, so where did you wind up going and why? Very lucky. Yes, that's true. I ended up going to Harvard. Okay. Um, but I actually had first accepted Stanford. Um, because, really? Oh, my God. Yes. Unpack this. Um, so I, yeah, I was very lucky. Really liked Stanford. Was very enthusiastic about coming back out to the Bay Area where I'm But you from. wanted to be with the smart kids? So, no, I'm screwing with you. They're both smart kids. I, uh, I, I worked for, as we discussed, Larry Summers at the White House. Ah. And so I actually had packed my bags to move to Stanford. And then I got the offer after picking this fight with him. Okay. Um, which I was wrong about. Uh, he was like, well, I guess I, I argued, um, you know, laudably. And so he said, well, we actually have an open position open. Would you like to come? Wow. Um, and so, of course, I said, absolutely. That's a BFD. Yeah, I was very, Big <laughs> very lucky. Uh, so took that job, didn't go to Stanford. And then he ended up leaving the White House to go back to Harvard. Uh, and perfect. I ended up going back with him to continue to work with him. Got it. Were you teacher's associate? Uh, what are they called? Teacher? TA? A TA. No, yeah. I, not officially, but we wrote a number of things together. And yeah. You know my standard joke. No. Well, whenever anybody tells oh, me yeah. they went to Harvard uh, or, or to Stanford, when the Stanford kids say, well, you know, I went to Stanford, I say, oh, you couldn't get into Harvard. And then when the Sta Harvard folks say uh, they went to Harvard, I say, oh, you couldn't get into Stanford. And the Stanford kids are just like, yeah, you know, um, I wanted to be in California. I'm an entrepreneur. I just wanted to be closer to venture capital and innovation. And the Harvard program is amazing, obviously. And I did think about that. And uh, but you know, I just start, Stanford felt like a better fit for me. And then you say it to a Harvard kid, and they're like, "Well, actually, you know, Harvard is ranked number one in 17 of the 22 studies. And uh, actually, if you look at the average salaries coming out, it's 14% more. And there's more people at Goldman and more people in CEO positions and more people in CFO positions from Harvard than actually Stanford. Wow. And it's actually, and you're like, okay, pump the brakes." Your insecurity you're, is overwhelming. You're being trolled. My other favorite is if somebody went to Harvard, you're like, oh, where'd you go to college? And they're like, Boston. And you're like, oh, you went to, Bo you went to Boston College? You're like, no, 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 no. Boston University? No, no. Uh, I, I went in Boston. And you're like, oh, where? where? Cambridge. Like, oh, you went to MIT? <laughs> like, no. Where did you go? I went to Harvard. Oh. And they're so used to people hating them for going to Harvard that they will not say it. Well, I went to Yale, and I made the mistake once of saying, oh, I went to school in New Haven. And that one is really, that one's yeah. really bad. So I, I, I learned that lesson but, oh, very quickly. Oh, New Haven Community College? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, mean, I don't know what the community exactly. college there is, but no. um, tell me about how you, you got into venture capital. Because actually, Larry knows every venture capital. The way I know Larry is he knows every venture capitalist, and I think he's on some, I mean, I won't speak out of school here, but he's involved in some venture firms, yeah. Yes, he is. Absolutely. He Believe works with, yeah, he works with Andreessen. Okay. Public. Um, okay, I wasn't sure. Yeah, yeah, he was an advisor to him at least years ago when yeah. I was learning about this world. So I actually got into venture. So when I was in business school, so I did a degree in economics and a degree in business when I was at Harvard, and I couldn't decide. And I spent a summer at the IMF working on the Greek debt bailout, my first summer, decided I was not going to be a career economist although I still flirt with it, um, and went to business school. And Warburg Pincus reached out to me when I was in business school and said, hey, Sarah, would you think about doing a summer internship with us? And this is embarrassing, but I'd never heard of the firm. Yeah. Uh, and I was in India reading the Economic Times, which I love their newspaper, and they had done a deal in India. And I have loved India. I was very excited about emerging market investing, having spent a bunch of time abroad. And they said, and so I was like, well, this firm, they do deals in India. I emailed Larry. And I said, Larry, this Warburg Pincus, and he said, Sarah, take the blank expletive interview. So I have great respect for him. And I did take, take the, the interview. So yeah. I, I learned how to do uh, leverage buyouts on paper over a weekend mm. uh, and went into Warburg. It was Valentine's Day. 
um, and met with seven partners in a room very similar to this and uh, did a, somehow survived and with some dignity intact, spent the summer there, really loved investing, um, what I was beginning to know of it, and heard Google was starting a growth equity fund. And wow. so blind emailed, who then became my boss, Jean France, and said, I spent a summer, I really want to do this, and are you looking for people? And they didn't even have a website um, and were just building their team. And so was very fortunate to join what is now called Capital G. You'll love this. We had to buy the Twitter handle name from a rapper. Capital G. Capital G. Yeah. Yeah, he's Not pretty great. Not a lowercase G, any real great. J. Yeah. Any. Capital G, we yeah. got it. Um, now, Capital G is the corporate investing arm that did, I believe, Uber. So they Alphabet makes this very confusing. And then they have Google Ventures, which then became GV, which operates outside of Google with Google's money, but has independence. And Google, theoretically, Google's employees, business units don't know or, or get the information that's firewalled with the GV investments. So you know more about this probably than most people at Alphabet. Oh, okay. um, but so I, so that's right. We yeah. were balance sheet capital. Yeah. Um, and so we were independent. So we were not investing for strategic reasons. It was for ah. financial return, just right. like a Warburg Pincus or a KKR or a TPG would do. Do people believe you when you say that? Most? Or did you have to explain that over and over again to the oh, founders? I definitely, oh, I definitely explained that over and over and over again to the founders. Yeah. But then you would say, but the, the reason you would take the capital from us is because we can get Google to help you. And that was very compelling. So it's almost like having your cake and eating it too. It's like, I'm going to get money at, a, at probably a competitive price. And then if I want to talk to somebody at Google, I can. But you're promising me that my information, my data, whatever you glean at the board meetings is not going to Sundar or Larry or Sergey or some other business unit to compete with us. Exactly. And we couldn't do that. I mean, we would. Uh, I mean, the reputation of Google would be damaged, and yeah. and our group would disappear. So that never happened. Right. But we did. Yes, it's confusing. But GV is GV invested in Uber, right? And they're the earlier stage arm, and Capital G was later stage. And then subsequently sued them for the Waymo trial. Yes, I'm staying out of that. Yeah, were you there at that time? I was not there at that time. That was an interesting moment. I'm sure it was. Yeah. Well, I mean, the person who was at the center of that. I mean, apparently committed serious crimes and took every document with him. And I don't think that's a dispute. And when he showed the documents to Travis, Travis said, by all means, do not ever bring those anywhere within a mile of our building or servers. Are you absolutely out of your mind and broke up with them? It was a crazy moment in time. Taking anything from Google doesn't, I didn't even like, I went forward an email. I mean, it just like, you're going to get found so, out. Isn't it amazing how people are dumb? Like. I had somebody at one point, I'll just leave it at that, email themselves every document after like 15 minutes and download every database before they resigned. And it's like, you you emailed yourself everything? Are, are, how dumb are you? Like, you, of course we're going to know you downloaded every database and forwarded it to yourself. Like, we had a lot of discussions about that at the White House, like no forwarding things to your Gmail, you know. They told you, like, don't be yeah, stupid. Yes, of course. But I mean, how, why does people have to even say that to people? Like, do people not understand the nature of like corporate communications? Everything is tracked. Everything is backed up. Like, you're, you're going to get uh, caught. Yeah, we so, don't have secrets anymore. We're post post secrets. I write every single email, every single SMS exchange, every Slack exchange, with one thing in mind. Uh, this will eventually be public, uh, and other people are reading it in all likelihood right now. So I just assume that this message, whether it's on an encrypted messaging platform or on a 
Slack channel or anywhere, email, is going to be the lead on a CNBC story or whatever. It's all going to be out there. I hope my emails are that interesting, you know? I mean, no, they'd be I mean, living a pretty good life. I, you have to tell your founders, like, just do, this is, should not be in an email. Yeah. This should not be on any electronic communications. It's just like you can talk about it on the phone and actually not have a problem. So uh, after GV, you wind up at Index. We, I get how you got there. What is your job today? In, and describe the footprint of Index uh, and what Danny built here. Yes. Yeah. Um, so what's his Danny Reimer's partner's name? He had a partner in founding the firm, I think. Oh, Mike Volpe, who opened the San Mike Francisco. Volpe. Yeah, so got it. A little bit Danny of... was in London. That's where I'm, exactly. or Paris even. I, don't, I, I went to his apartment one time. I don't know if it was London We're or probably Paris. Probably in London. Probably in London. I'll be London. very jealous if it was Paris. That's where I aspire to live someday. I, it might have been. I don't, I don't know if I just outed about having a Paris apartment. But well, anyway. now I'm going to demand yeah, an invitation next time. All I know is he had the La Durée macaroons. Oh, there you and go. I was just so you were those. transported to Paris. It could be that's what I'm uh, mixing up in my mind. Uh, but yeah, give me the history here. How much is under management and then what your role is in all of this? Absolutely. Yeah. So Index was founded 25 years ago in Geneva, which is very unique for a venture capital fund sure. um, by Neil Reimer, Danny's brother. And we were, so we were originally in Geneva, then moved to London where Danny opened that office. Yep. Danny's been kind of a geographic pioneer for Index yep. um, and really helped create the venture ecosystem in Europe at a time where now everybody is talking about Europe as being an exciting place to invest in technology companies. But back then, yeah. it, a lot of people, and this is what I heard, was like, it's not, there's nothing, nothing large coming out of Europe. Well, that is obviously not the case now. Um, Scandinavian companies seem to be doing pretty good. Exactly. Yeah, I'm not Spotify, sure about the rest of it. Yeah. Super so Klarna. that was a lot of, Klarna, exactly. So a lot of index was early days investing in gaming and fintech, um, which was very helpful. Um, and so Danny set up, helped set up that operation, a team in Europe. And then our value proposition was helping those companies expand into the United States. Because when you got to a certain stage in Europe, you wanted to expand to an even larger market and come to the US. And then when Danny and Mike came out and opened this office um, about eight years ago, they also realized that there were a lot of great companies here that we could help expand into Europe. Right. It's like Slack being one of them. Right. They have unbelievable traction. They have a lot of users, but they don't have a business yet in Europe. So we started doing that. So that is where Transatlantic Venture Capital Fund, right. um, wonderful for me being one of the eight partners that I get to travel to Europe to go see Danny. Yeah. Often he's back in London oh, now. He? he moved that. back. Oh, that's fantastic. He moved back. Yeah. Heartbreaking for me uh, yeah. because I really would, I mean, we talk daily, but uh, nicer to see him in person. And your role at the fund now? What, what do you do? Early, mid, late? Yeah, tell yeah, me about so I joined how the fund invests. Absolutely. So yeah. when I met, you had asked me fund size too. So we have a billion dollar growth fund and a $650 million venture fund. And it's actually the same partners that invest out of both funds. So we have four partners based in San Francisco and then four in London, well, three in London and one in Geneva. And we're all doing all series. So I have invested in seed deals and series H. So the last round we did in Slack was a series H before the company listed. So I will do all of those things. Uh, and for people who are founders, which fund do they go to at what time? Because growth funds and you know venture funds, the, even those are subsections within them. So what's the smallest check you write out of the venture fund? What's the typical check? And, and then the same for the growth fund. Yeah. So for index, like companies should come to us at, at any time. Um, and then we'll, well figure out, says that, we'll figure yeah. out which, which fund to invest from. That's actually right. the nice thing is that, you know, it, when I was at Capital G, it was, oh, wait, are we GV? Are we Capital G? And that would take some figuring out right. here. Like the entrepreneur so everybody come. doesn't have to worry about it. But, but how we, sizes, yeah. yeah, how we think about it. So 
you know, seed, we would do anywhere from, you know, I don't know, 50,000, we would do that, that's rare, to a million to five million these days seed rounds. Right. Um, to, and for Series A, you know, anywhere from five to 10 to 15 to 20, who knows, you know, this market is crazy yeah. these days, rules are made to be broken. Yeah. Um, and I think the way that we think about a, you know, Series A companies, we're really looking for a founder and an extremely compelling idea in an attractive market at Series B and above, which is traditionally in our growth fund, we're looking for you know real traction and product evidence of product market fit. Mm. Um, so those are the two ways that I would distinguish kind of the funds. Um, but the nice thing is that's on us to figure out, not the founder. All right, when we get back for this quick break, I want to talk to you about the Series A and what it takes to clear a market in 2020 for a Series A specifically, because it seems to be extremely hard to do. Uh, right now, and there seems to be a glut of companies trying to get a venture capitalist to write that five, $10 million Series A check, um, and they're not having success when we get back on Angel. If you're an accredited investor or if you're a founder, you need to understand what a special purpose vehicle is. You've probably heard people in the investment community say SPV. You might have heard me say it for the syndicate.com. SPVs. We run SPVs, and that allows us to have up to 250 accredited investors invest up to $10 million into a company. And there's only one item on the cap table. So if you're an angel investor with a bunch of rich friends, you can start your own syndicate powered through an SPV. You've seen these SPVs on all different websites around there. Well, here at launch, we could not be more pleased with our partnership with the team at Assure, A-S-S-U-R-E. They power the syndicate.com. We have almost 4,000 members in our syndicate and Assure has been amazing for us through over 125 syndicates and we've put tens of millions of dollars to work. Assure is the leading provider of SPVs and fund administration with over $2.5 billion in assets under administration. That's AUA. And they have over 5,000 completed transactions. They know what they're doing. They've developed an innovative software uh, platform called Glassboard to automate the entire investment experience from entity formation all the way to an IPO. It's slick. It's beautiful. They're doing a great job with it. And Ashley, who manages the syndicate here for us, uh, loves the interface. She's told me great things about it. And I, you know, I see it as well. It's uh, obviously they're they're uh, just building something absolutely beautiful. It's like the future of investing. So not only do investors love it, but founders love it as well because it keeps their cap tables nice and clean and simple. They also manage the entire process over the life of the investment. To get 20% off your first special purpose vehicle, your first SPV, I want you to visit Assure, A-S-S-U-R-E dot co slash angel. So go ahead and get 20 of your friends together and do a group investment. Maybe you find a great company, you got 20 friends, and you say, you know what? I found this great deal. I'm putting 25K into it. I wonder if my friends want to put 5, 10, 25K into it as well. We'll do it SPV. And you know what? This will help you get into deals. In my experience, if you're writing bigger checks, you get more rights, you get more access to the founder, and you get better deal flow. Uh, thanks to our friends at Assure. Uh, we love the company, and uh, they've done a great job for us. Let's get back to this amazing episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the first episode of Angel Season 4. Thanks to all the partners uh, for making this possible. It really means a lot to me and to the, to the viewers. I know that. Sarah Cannon is with us, not Sarah Connor. And she's a partner at Index Ventures. Uh, yep, billions under management, obviously. A uh, very successful firm uh, known, of course, for the Slack investment. And what are the other big ones? Spotify? Spotify, Dropbox, Audien, Robinhood, Elastic, Amazing. Roblox. Yeah, lots of winners Figma. in there. Uh, we, when I left for the quick break, 
uh, I wanted you to get your take on the Series A. What does it take to clear market right now? And, and what happens in a partner meeting? Perhaps this is the best way to frame it. When you're in a partner meeting and you're fighting for a Series A investment or one of your partners are, what is the dynamic and what is the what clears market with the other partners? Because you need to have consensus here or some percentage of consensus, the consensus-based firm, or is it majority, or is it free-for-all? Yeah, so I uh, will talk about the partner meeting. So, you know, so much at the Series A is is two important things. One, if I had to cat, you know, boil it down, one is the founder, and the other is, you know, the value proposition they have and the size of the opportunity, right? So for the founder, we meet as a partnership. So both my European partners and my San Francisco partners were one team. Um, we will meet every founder. So at you know other firms, it will be one partner will meet the company and then represent them to the rest of the investment committee. For us, the relationship with the founder is so important that we want them to be able to meet all of us. Eight people. Yep. And that actually happened? nine, because we have a wonderful operating partner, Bernard. So, oh, oh no, just on a scheduling basis, does that mean every, they come to the partner meeting or do they have to meet two or three at a time and do three meetings? So we, no, we meet all at once. Got it. So we have a partner meeting every Monday morning and then we'll meet companies. So we'll be meeting okay. a company in Berlin, we'll meet a company in, you know, Helsinki, and then one in San Francisco, one in New York, and the partner will be with them wherever, or hopefully they're in this room. How but, many do you do every Monday? Oh, Walmart. man. I So I personally have wanted to institute a cap because at five, you're not making good decisions. Ah. Right. And you're context switching. It's a series A on this market and then it's a series C in another market. So I, you know, typically on an average Monday, two or three companies. Yeah. Um, and Half an hour, hour each or is an hour allotted for each? It's and... 45 minutes presentation by the company. And then we will have a debrief as a partnership for 15 or however many minutes. So it's a full day. We need. Oh, it's a very, it's a very full day. Mm. Um, but so much of it is that founder. And so to be able to have eight people's perspectives on, is this person the kind of person that's going to build a multi-billion dollar business? Um, and also get them a chance to get to know us. Because I think you really get a sense of a firm by meeting eight people. Like, yeah. who are the people they've chosen to be partners? How do they interact? What questions do they ask? Do they like, give me time to ask them questions? Um, so that's a huge part for us of the Series A. And then I'd say the second is this kind of what I called, what is a value proposition? How big is the opportunity? Yeah. Um, you know, I was trained kind of doing later stage investing. And the key question there is like, is this a good business? One of the things I learned is, is this a good business to be in? So we'll say like, is this fundamentally, if this works as this entrepreneur has laid out in this visionary way, is this a great business to be what's in? What's a bad business to be in? What's a good business to be in? What's something in the middle? If you could give an example, you can scrub the name and give the category or, you know, it doesn't have to be in your portfolio, but what are bad businesses to be in? I don't know, like airlines, for example, like things that have been historically very low margin, right? Like, or so highly, right, low, reg- low margin, high regulation. But then, so I'll say that, but then there's Amazon, right? Where there is a, and as an investor, you learn too, there are exceptions to this rule, where there are things that are scaled with very low margins that are attractive. Now that's rare, right? Right. And so that's I think- threading the needle. Exactly. And so you also want to design, and we'll jump, jump to your other question about institutional design and how you make decisions as an investment committee, you want to have flexibility to make sure that you're not just doing the median deal that everyone likes, that you are taking risk on maybe there is a low margin business that's very attractive, for example. Um, But I'd say that second series of things that we debate as a partnership is, is this a good business to be in fundamentally? A great business to be in would be um, enterprise software. Yeah. Take a Slack, for example, High right? Margin. Large market, growing, bottoms up adoption by developers, right? And it structurally, it will have good margins. Subscription scale. based now. Subscription based. So every year you start with 120% of the revenue of last year. 
I like that. <laughs> By default. I do like high quality revenue. Yeah, high exactly. quality reoccurring revenue. Exactly. Yeah. How much are we going to make this year? Well, at least 120% of what we made last year unless this product stinks. Exactly. Uh, so and then what are the ones in the middle? Like marketplaces? Where do you put them? Great businesses? In the so middle? I'd say in the middle, I would put a category I've thought a lot about because I'm very interested in this trend towards freelancing and gig workers and but a lot of labor marketplaces. So I, as you can tell, my background's in economics. I'm curious about how people find work. So a lot of, there are a lot of labor marketplaces that exist, which I think is an interesting idea, connecting you to work that needs to be done in the universe. But I think when the ticket sizes are low, like you're earning relatively, let's say it's a category where wages aren't that high. And it's Food really, delivery. There we go. And it's really expensive to acquire them. Um, those unit economics are not going to be probably great. So I'd say that's a business where there's a need for it, but it may just not be as good of a business or as large of a business um, down the line. Uh, we have millions of people driving for Uber, Lyft, Postmates, DoorDash. Uh, we have a government here in California um, and in other places that are fighting to make those full-time workers. Those people have unlimited job opportunities at that low end. We'll call it 12 to $20 an hour uh, jobs today um, with massively low unemployment. They're opting in to being freelancers. Why is the government trying to fight for a group of people who want to be freelancers to be full-time when if they wanted to be full-time, they could take the gig at Target, Walmart, and drive their asses into an office or into a location and be there for an 8, 10, 12-hour shift if they wanted to. But they're opting to not do that. Yeah. I think the reason you're seeing, do you remember the protests outside of Marriott um, that were happening in San Francisco? Let like, me guess, there was a giant rat. <laughs> <laughs> there was a giant rat. Yeah. Um, but something really stuck, stuck with me walking by them was like, one job should be enough. And the reason that I think a lot of people are taking these jobs at, at Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and is because they're not earning enough to our very so early supplemental income. So in and that because they're not earning enough to pay for the expenses of living in these cities, as you mentioned. Right. So because I think and I, I forget the numbers exactly, but when I looked at it, it was like 70 percent of people were doing it part time. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely the majority are part time and they swing massively. Now, this is information from, you know, when, when my guy was running Uber, but uh, back in the day, it was a 50% or greater swing in number of hours week over week. Right. <clears throat> so people would work 20, 30, 10, you know, and they would also work two or three hours, pick up their kids, have lunch with them, work, have dinner, put them to bed, then work three or four hours. And it was massive flexible. So should they be allowed, in your mind, to have this flexibility? Or is and is the government here right or wrong to not allow 1099 work? Yeah. Your personal opinion. Yeah, for I have one. Um, so I think <clears throat> income on demand is great. And I think that we need a new labor contract. So I don't think it should be full time or 1099. I mean, there's obviously rules in San Francisco or sorry, in California that have been proposed. My view on this is that personally, and this is not an index view, is that there should be partial contribution. So if I'm working for Lyft 20% of the time, they can contribute 20% to my healthcare benefits. And if I'm working 60% for DoorDash, they can contribute 60%. So kind of a pro rata allocation right. based on the amount of hours that I work. Because I do fundamentally think if you're working, you should be getting benefits. But I don't. Th I think the nature of work has changed. Like yeah. you said, it's flexible. It's income on demand. It's different. And so we need government policy to evolve. So in your map. world, when you're governor, uh, okay. and you have to make these decisions. Um, 
do you lump a freelance attorney, designer, truck driver, um, freelance journalist, writer, freelance, uh, real estate brokers or freelance, do they get to be 1099 and only the poor people don't get to be 1099 in your world? No, it's a great Because that seems very unfair to me uh, on its face. Yeah. No, I think you, they're different types of work, right? So I think it, but I mean, my model would be proportional to the salary that you earn. So you would still be getting, it would be tiered based on what you're earning. Got it. That's but, an interesting punch up. So where yeah. do you put that line? It's a great, it's a great question. What's, what's the distinguishing feature between a real 1099 worker and, and I don't, haven't figured that out yet. Good thing 50, I'm not governor yet. more than minimum wage? Then you can become a 1099 yeah. by the level of income. But I, I never thought about it, but this is a very, I've always thought what's going on right now is a negotiation to come up with a third tier. Yeah. And actually, I agree. based on the inside information I know, that's actually what's occurring. Yep. Um, that there is, full-time employment, 1099, and can there be something in between where there's a contribution, et cetera? So how does that get triggered? I never thought about it based on the salary. That actually uh, seems to me to make sense. If you're making minimum wage or less, yeah, th there's not a lot of room there. So maybe when you hit 1,000 hours a year, you get contri a contribution towards healthcare, days off, whatever. Um, but it, if you're above it, if you're double the minimum wage, do we need to be dictating to a $30, $40 an hour person, how they, if they decide to be a freelancer, that they can't do it, a writer, a designer, a PR rep, a real estate broker? This is, this is interesting. We need to get you to Washington. <laughs> I think this is a good, which doesn't seem like something you'd be jazzed about doing, but they have. Jason.com. <laughs> but they. Uh, Governorjason.com. Yeah, President Jason. I mean, why? I wonder where but he's wearing a mic button, so. I wonder where all those domain names resolve to. All right, let's answer this question about how to solve this debate in 90 seconds after this break. We have 90 seconds I've to got solve it. it, Sarah. You I've got, got it. it. I got okay, it. I'm right ready. There. Okay. Right there. Okay. When we get back, we're going to solve the freelance debate in America on Angel Season 4, Episode 1. When we get back. Zeus Living makes it easy to live wherever opportunity takes you. Yes, that's right. Whether you're connecting with investors on the other side of the country or you're opening an office in a new city, Zeus, Z-E-U-S Living offers smart, furnished housing that's cozy and convenient. Zeus can accommodate 30 plus day stays and includes all the essentials like cleaning supplies, kitchenware, and toiletries. And you get great options like a downtown one bedroom if you like the city area or a single family home in a neighborhood you want to explore. Maybe you're thinking of moving there even. And you get flexible booking dates, immediate availability, and minimal paperwork. They've thought this through. Of course, it's got high-speed Wi-Fi, Xfinity, and smart TVs. That's all standard. Zeus is the hassle-free way to streamline your next stay. You can find Zeus living in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and across the Bay Area, Seattle, New York, Washington, D.C., and Boston. Rest assured, you, your family, and your pets will be secure with their digital locks and 24-7 on-the-ground support. For a limited time, Zeus is offering $200, not $100, not $50, but $200, $200 off your first booking. And that's only for listeners of The Angel Podcast. So you're going to go to ZeusLiving.com slash Angel. Once again, 200 from J. Callen Zeus. Visit ZeusLiving, Z-E-U-S Living.com slash Angel, A-N-G-E-L. ZeusLiving.com slash Angel and get 200 in your pocket right now. Thanks again to Zeus Living for giving such a generous offer to our listeners. Let's get back to this amazing episode. 
All right, we're cooking with oil now. Uh, we're talking about politics. We're talking about employment. We're we're touching all of the uh, third rail issues here. Uh, and um, we're, in the uh, fourth segment, we're going we're to bring up uh, atheism. Uh, we haven't even talked about the things I invest in. I exactly. love it. We're going to get there. Uh, trust me. Okay, I'm this ready. This is the way to do an interview is that if you have a super compelling discussion that's not like marketing or PR or that kind of stuff, then when we do drop your portfolio, people are going to be like, you earned it, right? Like you earned the plug, right? It's sort of like <laughs> okay, when good. Robin Williams would go on David Letterman or any of these shows, they would be so amazingly funny that when they mentioned the movie that they were promoting, you'd be like, got to see Bicentennial, man. This, he was so good on just talking about his life. We have to go see it. By the way, Bicentennial Man, I just watched it with my daughters because I'm doing all the Android movies. So we did Blade Runner, Bicentennial Man, AI, um, and uh, actually underrated. Have you seen Bicentennial Man? No. It's, it's worth watching. It's actually a really great film. It has flaws, but um, really just talks about if you could live forever if you wanted to and how we treat androids. Um, it, not totally dissimilar. Um, to the human rights issue of work and benefits that we're talking about right now. All right, you said you had the solution. Yeah. We're brainstorming, workshopping here. No, it's thanks to you that I got it because okay. you said an income-based, it should it be dis- separated based on lower income workers or higher income, basically. Yeah. And I think that, that this is, you got to it, but it is, it costs a certain amount to buy your own health care, right? So if we can figure out at what income level you could afford your own health care, right. then maybe that's the cutoff where we say your company then doesn't have to provide you benefits. So, six, so whatever that cost six is. 6 to $12,000 in room for healthcare, you get to be 1099. So if, you know, in the United States, most places, you know, dual income, 50, 60, 70,000 a year, taking San Francisco and New York out, 60, 70,000 dollars a year plus for the family income, plus I think it's 9,000 dollars for a family, 12,000 dollars a year, so something like that, it's called 10. You have to be 10 over a household income of 60 or 70. Which would then equate to forty thousand a year to divide it by two thousand and be over twenty dollars an hour. It's about fifty percent more than so minimum wage. So your first wage guess wasn't bad. Well, it'd be triple minimum wage, the federal, right? Because federal is seven fifty or something. So it'd be triple federal. Oh right, California is fifty. Yeah. Yeah. Which actually I think is smart that they localize the minimum wage because cost of living is different. Radically different. But there is a little. But so I think this is you know to our solution from brainstorm a creative <laughs> one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but. God forbid anybody had a creative idea in the political sphere. They'd be like, I'm sorry, did you have an innovative idea that you wanted to test? Okay, we have to cancel you now. No, I'm sure someone's thought of this. Well, I don't know. I hope we made a real contribution. Um, But I also think part of me is like, well, why don't we let people choose? Why don't they decide if I'm I'm a yeah, real estate agent like or I'm a DoorDash driver and I want them to contribute or I'm going to pay on my own? Why don't we just I let like them? That. Why don't we let them choose? Because politicians uh, are so afraid of actually having an open conversation about something because they'll record it and then play it back for the next 30 years that, oh my God, you considered stop and frisk, as Mike Bloomberg did, in context at that time, I think it was close to 70% of New Yorkers were in favor of stop and frisk and doing anything. Now, it was obviously different by different demographics. Um, and it was a mistake. He apologized for it, Mike Bloomberg, with stop and frisk. Um, but in context, people were very scared in New York at that time. Uh, because it was so lawless. Just like after 9-11, we made a mistake with waterboarding. It was obviously a terrible idea for us to break the Universal Declaration of Human Rights after we, Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, taking credit for it, we, the United States, Eleanor Roosevelt, created it. We broke it. Mm-hmm. I mean, just really spit in the face of everything that's right in the world. Um, so mistakes can be made. But in this case, 
That would be actually wonderful. I think it would be a massive advantage for Uber to offer minimum wage. You have to work these shifts. Unlimited, uncapped, you um, can pick your own hours. But it would be great for them to be able to say, you know what, we know there's a, we know the Super Bowl or this event is occurring or New Year's Eve is happening. You, uh, as a full-time person, have to work New Year's Eve. You don't get surge pricing, but you just have to, we have, you, you'll have a defined shift and you get benefits. Mm. So you get the benefits, you get the job security, but you got to work the hours we want. And you can't work for Lyft or vice versa or Postmates. So this is what people don't realize. That is, is great for the business. But right, I, I love this idea for the business for side. For the business. But for, if you're thinking about it from a worker perspective. Well, wait, but didn't you just take the side that you want everybody to have benefits? I do. And not want them to be freelancers. So which is it, Sarah? But they, in my world, they could choose what they wanted. You're rather not allowed than... to do that because you get sued. You, the companies have to pick one. They have to pick but one position. But this is because the regulatory infrastructure doesn't exist yet. This it's is actually broken. what I wrote my master's thesis on with Larry. Yeah. Um, was what is the what are the new laws that we need for the sharing economy? And if there were rules that said this, then the companies wouldn't have to be. Dis- this is actually like writ large something I think in technology, right? Like Mark Zuckerberg is saying, I don't want to be choosing what content goes on Facebook, but the rules don't exist yet. So I think there's a whole opportunity, hopefully, for people who know technology right. to help think about what are the good rules. Um, maybe yeah. we just could keep talking about them and come up with a whole slew. Well, in this but, case, I think it would be really amazing if people could make a decision for themselves. Like this patriarchal, like the government is the best person to decide if you want to be a freelancer or you want to be full-time. Why not let Uber, Lyft, and Postmates say, here's the full-time job, here's the part-time job. 1099, unlimited upside, surge pricing, make your own hours, no benefits. Full-time, benefits, we pick your hours, you don't. Which, by the way, is what Starbucks does. Like, I th- or, or if you want to work at Target, you have to come in at 6 a.m. and you have to work the 6 a.m. to whatever shift and it sucks and you got to drive an hour to be there and you got to be in this location. You don't pick your location. You don't pick your hours. The challenge is, I th- the <clears throat> economist would say, that the individual doesn't know the full economic costs and benefits of the choices, right? Oh, Which so people are patronizing. Stupid? No, but there are things like consumer like information, right? Like, okay, the interest rate on this loan is this much higher than the market standard or this thing that you're yeah. about to eat has this many calories in it. So I think yeah. there's a little bit of like, trust the individual to make the decision, but arm them with information. Like if you get this graduate degree, you're never going to get a job. Like I want someone to know that because it is very hard to know that going before. So I think I'm much for like, let's get individuals the data. Like at this rate, you will earn this much this year. Healthcare costs this much. You decide. Okay. Now we go back and forth. (laughs) If we could change one thing that would uh, increase upward mobility. Yep. Let's just pick three things that would change upward mobility. And we can do this dueling banjo style. They'll put in a you pick one, I pick one, you pick one, I pick one. If we're if we're duplicating, that's good for the show. Um, what three things, changes we could make here in America? We're talking about America. We're talking about the American system. What could we change here that would increase upward mobility? You, I, I'll go first, or you can go first. You pick. Okay, I'll go first. Great. Um, I knew you would. The quality. I mean, I accept it to Harvard and Stanford, like. There's no chance you're going to be like, no, of course, you're the host. You go first. Oh, no, no, I'm rude. Your hand goes right up. No, I'm rude. Were you the first person? Like one third of uh, your classes were class participation. I was at GSB. Literally, I've never seen 100% of people raise their hand when the professor said, does anybody have any feedback? No, and then there's the poor one guy who doesn't raise his hand, and he definitely gets cold calls. There was a TA who had a picture of every single person in a spreadsheet, and when they asked a question, she typed in if they asked it. 
And there's a problem with Sarah. It's a really easy name to say. So you really get called on a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, yeah, so maybe I raise my hand. Um, Go so, ahead. This uh, is great. <laughs> reforming the quality of our K-12 through education uh, system. Fantastic. Uh, education 2 was on mine. Um, but I will not pick that as my first. What's your first? My first is to change the accreditation laws to be sophisticated laws so that any person in the United States who's able to play roulette in Vegas is also able to invest in private companies. So if you were an Uber driver uh, or an Airbnb host, you would be able to freely buy shares in the company and not be stopped because then the debate that we're talking about of yeah. the millions of people driving for trucking companies, Uber and Lyft and Postmates could say, for every uh, $100,000 you bill through the system, we are going to give you $500 in shares at the current valuation, which they cannot do because of the oppressive, patriarchal rules that make capital gains and private company investment something for the rich, not the poor. What's your second? I and you feel free to react to No, no, no. Actually, the Germans have a lot to teach us about this. So they, they actually will have a lot of workers represented on the boards of companies to deal yes. with this. So I don't think it's so that's more representation than it is financial. But it's the same, same, same principle. Yeah, same principle. Same principle. So I think I think we have a lot to learn. So my second one is actually also learning from the Germans, and the South Africans do this well too. But it is having technical schools where you actually are learning skills that can be applied at work, but like over the course of your life. So we have community colleges and I think, and we have a lot of great four-year institutions. I think there's still a room. I'm hoping someone will start this business. It's one that I've thought about starting, um, where you're getting kind of technical skills that then you go into work, but you do this every five years. So Love. I think education Continuing needs to education. change. Exactly. But it, like, why is it that in our lives we're born, we have a chapter of education and then a chapter of work? Why don't I have some education, work, then maybe all of a sudden venture capital can be done by robots and Sarah, you're out of luck and I can go learn to be a philosopher, which I've always wanted to do. And then I can hopefully do that. You did a great job today, by the way. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. This um, week in philosophy. This week in philosophy. I'm Brought sure you talk you about by. this on all of your no, shows. No, no. Literally, no. you put this on the table and <laughs> people, I, I watch them curl up like the, the tension, like, oh my God, you're going to, Jason's going to make me talk about poverty or jobs. And they're just like, my PR person did not prepare me a stump answer for this. You're delightful in that you'll just talk about oh, it. Oh dear, all the time. I mean, you do give the, like, this is my opinion, not index, which by the way, this is what America used to be like. People forgot the 80s and 90s where people could sit down and have a vibrant discussion and debate it. You try that now, people are like, I don't like that opinion. We got to cancel this person. Probably the most horrible thing about what we do to politicians is that they are not allowed to evolve their views. So I, I, I'm going with Mike Bloomberg because I want to have the most qualified president who's got the most experience and knows how to manage people. And he wasn't on your top three, which I find super revealing, um, uh, disturbing. Also, um, why well, no Mike Bloomberg? Mostly to provoke you because you're wearing a button. Was that if it? You're just agreed. straight up trolling me? If we agreed, you're doing it for the good of the pod? It wouldn't be any fun. Okay, great. I love it. You know how podcasts work. But we're, I, how, I'm learning in how, real time. How do you, you know how like entertainment works, you're just inherently entertaining. Um, how, how do you look at a Mike Bloomberg? As a extremely talented business person. And I just think that these people have been, I, I like him. I, 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 we mentioned I almost went to his event. I'm open-minded. To be honest, I would just really like one of these people to win. win. Yeah. Yeah. Normalcy. Just, loyalty. Yeah. Something. All those things. All the honesty. Yeah. Empathy. Mm -hmm. Reasonability. Listen to. But experts. I have to say, I'm, I'm an optimist at heart, or you wouldn't be a venture capitalist. But yeah. I, I'm happy we're talking about climate. 
We're talking about a whole new set of economic proposals, the basic income to Andrew Yang. Um, I, you know, so I like that there's new ideas out there. And I just want them to be implemented. Okay, so my second is unlimited trade trade school education sponsored by the government, uh, two-year clips, et cetera, but at any age. And so we uh, do what, uh, similar to uh, income sharing agreements, Mm -hmm. I guess, if you want to go for free to college, uh, we will tie that in some way to your taxes compensation increasing, um, and uh, it'll be free. But if you do get a job in that space, you will pay back yours over some period of time. It could be 50 years because the United States can play the long game. So if we train you as a developer uh, or as a um, you know a nurse or whatever job is really in demand right now, we don't have enough of plumbers actually also the average age is like 55 or 60 years old for plumbers right now in the United States. Nobody wants to take that job even though it's high paying. If we train you in that, you agree to pay it off tax-free in some very de minimis way. So if there was $20,000 in education over 50 years, or let's even make it 60, it would be nothing with no interest, but pays for the next person coming up the ladder. Uh, And those are available to anybody at any time, uh, but only for jobs that we need. So you can't do it for philosophy or art appreciation or things that are not- I think we don't need artists. I think that that's something you can teach yourself on the internet, but the government shouldn't pay for it. I was going to actually give you a high five. I don't know if I'm allowed to do that yeah. on the proposal because I could not agree with you more. I think there's a financial right. structure and you're making income from this. You're getting the training. But, but I, we need some art. I can't, I'm like, not for artists, philosopher, maybe not for this model. I understand. Yeah. You need to bound it or it would be very expensive. I'm trying to figure out also something because you talked about ideas becoming execution. This is a great first step. If this works, then maybe there's a place where okay. we can say, Hey, this model worked of a 60-year free loan from the government, not from you know predatory, you know horrible loans uh, that you know people are paying interest for 10 or 15 years, like you talked about earlier, and they don't know what they signed because they did it when they signed it when they're 19 years old and their frontal lobes were not even developed for long-term thinking. Hey, maybe we could. It's true. <laughs> like literally, the only loan you can't get out of is your student loans, and they make you sign them when you're 17, 18 yep. years old, and you have literally no frontal lobes yet, or uh, very, very de minimis. Uh, then you could actually say, okay, we're going to do some other ones, but it's capped at $10,000. Because going to Yale or going to you know, Columbia to get a $200,000 degree in philosophy that there is literally no job that pays anywhere near that would pay that back. In fact, there is no job for a philosopher other than, I think, professor. professor. Uh, which doesn't but work. you know what? That's we're going to need a lot of philosophers to help us understand AI. So there, you know, Fantastic. like you know maybe we books. need that exactly. Read books and do it remote or do it in like mastermind groups, but do not pay fifty thousand dollars a year for four years and then live in an apartment in the Upper West Side for another thirty thousand and go four hundred thousand in debt. Exactly. We just need to tell people what they're getting themselves into. Okay. So I got my second. Do you have a third? As we fix society? As we fix society. I mean, there's so many. Um, We're talking specifically here about upper mobility. You went K through 12. I went uh, accredited investor rules. You went... Community colleges. Community colleges. And you went the financing for that. Financing for that piece. Was there anything left? I have so many. Um, If I had to pick one, you know what it would be? Early childhood. I'm just going to pick child. I'm going to pick education all the way yeah. because all of the research tells you that like so much of people's capabilities are determined well, in the first two years of life. So like yeah. have someone reading and taking care of them. I would fund Head Start or another great early childhood. Literally, it was program. the same for me, um, which was in the early years, um, allowing seven day a week education slash childcare for let's call it ten hours a day. You know, or maybe even twelve. You know, seven a.m. to seven p.m. We have all of our schools open seven days a week, 
maybe even 360 days a year, take out the five or six major holidays, available 12 hours a day. Anybody can bring their child for any reason to be taken care of and educated in an open curriculum, including the summer, because it's such a small amount of money to do that. It would create jobs because you could double or you probably triple yeah. the number of teachers in the world, which is a great way to deal with unemployment or jobs going away because of automation. Teacher jobs are not going to go away. And then you unlock for one of the reasons people can't start companies is they had a child early in their life, perhaps even, and they can't take risk because they can't work because they got to pick up the child at school so they can't, they don't qualify for certain jobs, like working at a startup. Where they might need to come in on See, the weekend. See, you love the European socialist model. That's what they do. They I, have universal daycare. Yeah, I mean, and socialism isn't a, a bit of a, a you know a, a spectrum, right? And so I think society's slowly ticking up things. I am for compassionate capitalism. All the oh, suge- all, all the suggestions I have drive capitalism. They're designed not to be handouts, which I don't believe in. I believe in opportunities that then drive the capitalist system and create more billionaires. Couldn't agree more. And we just need to do more on the opportunity side. Tell me about your first uh, investment as an investor, uh, why you picked it, and how it worked out, and what you learned. And then what do you, uh, what's, tell me then about the last two or three and how you picked them. So the first and the last two or three. The first deal that I really led was Looker. So a business intelligence company, do you know them? Uh, I am on Looker every day. You are on Looker every day. Well, one of my Thank companies, you. Cafe X, yes. uh, which is a robotic yes. coffee machine. I drive past it every morning. Yeah, so we closed the ones in San Francisco because uh, running... Well, not every morning. I used to. We just moved them to <laughs> the airports because literally the vandalism in San Francisco, when you have to hire a security guard to secure the robot, <laughs> the business model breaks. But when you put them in an airport and people don't rip them apart, you're good. And they're crushing it. But uh, yeah, I, they have a Looker dashboard that I check on every day and like, I, without speaking out of school they like literally when they put these things in the airports I was like oh my god this four year journey we figured it out it just took four years oh, congratulations. so how did you find Looker what round did you invest in and why yes yeah, so we invested I was at Capital G at the time we invested in the series D and I found it because I you know business intelligence there's a lot of companies so as an investor it's always what's challenging it's like okay everyone knows it's an attractive category but there's so many like how do you know which is different and I surveyed our portfolio companies. So we had invested in, say, 20 companies at the time. And I sent them a survey, and I was like, what tools do you, you know, a bunch of categories, what tools do you love? And Slack was number one, which I tried to invest in for a very long time from Capital G. And number two was Looker. And I said, huh, uh, this one stands out. And then I talked to, which is ironic now, because the company has recently been acquired by Google. Um, but at the time, it had not, obviously, because I invested independently. And it I asked the Google team, well, what do you think of the technology? And they said, wow, I mean, the team there is really unique. And what's mm-hmm. differentiated about them is they've created this language called LookML, which you didn't have to know SQL. LookML. LookML. Don't you love it? Yeah, it's true. Um, it's like the power of naming. And it so, really is a thing. I was literally doing a workshop on naming this morning. Yeah. Wow, yeah. Just for a company. They did it. Well, it matters. And it totally matters. They, it's inception. Exactly. Puts it in your brain. Like when you say LookerML, you're like, oh, so you have your own coding language that makes it simple to convey complex things. Got it. Nailed it. So I just, you know the business. Yeah. But they came up with, but it was really that like BI used to be done only by, there would be the poor guy, Bob. Business intelligence. In the corner, exactly. Business intelligence, poor Bob running all of the analysis for the company. Right. And poor Bob had a long line and Bob was miserable. So the idea with LookML was to create a language that a Sarah could learn in marketing or HR or finance. And then I could do my own queries. And so that kind of democratized access to BI across the organization. And so really, I loved the product. 
I loved that it was cloud first and that our companies loved it. And they weren't going to raise, of course. This was, this was, I preempted, which now is like the oldest news in the history of time. But then it was interesting. This Define was 2017. Preempted. preempted. So the company was not actively looking for capital. Mm -hmm. They had raised around already. And they said, we're not looking, Sarah, we're not going to raise until next year. And I said, okay, well, why don't we pull it forward? Why don't you, here's a term sheet, like at this valuation, we'd invest this much. Like, you so know, you jumped the fence. I jumped the fence. And you that's said, how, that's conviction. I'm a, yeah. I'm a high conviction gal. So you gave them a valuation that might be next year or two years valuation. Year and a half. Year, year and a half. Because <clears throat> the forecast, you don't know exactly. All right. So you take the year and a half valuation. And you say, hey, here it is on a term sheet. And for the founder, what is the decision making for them? Because there's no such thing as a free lunch. There's some pro and there's some con to taking the preemptive funding. So give me the pro and con and how a founder should think about that. Absolutely. And this has become market. I mean, this is almost everything. Everybody's always raising is what is now, as I'm sure you know, is now the table stakes. So as a founder, when I'm thinking, when a founder thinks about this, it's a couple, the couple things. One is, is this valuation too aggressive? And, you know, founders think, oh, this person values my company at a billion, but that's on paper, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of risk that if you don't grow in the next two years as you expect to grow, and it's not just to grow into the valuation that the investor's given you, but you need to keep growing after that because you want your next valuation to be higher. Mm -hmm. So you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself and your team that you don't necessarily need to do. So one is like, is the valuation too aggressive that you're going to put yourself actually yeah. in a tough spot for no reason? The second thing I would say you really need to think about is, do you want to work with this investor, right? Because the alternative is to run a process and to meet more people. And a lot of times people who preempt will do it because if it were a real auction, they wouldn't, they wouldn't win. win. So they're using their checkbook uh, and jumping the fence to close the deal because they don't feel they would beat Sequoia or whoever, Index or yeah. Bill Gurley or whatever. Uh, exactly. That's a fascinating way to, to look at it. And then for the And founder, I always say, just as advice, because I get this a lot, like to people uh, is meet the three people, at least meet three people. I actually did this in a their company called Linear, which I really like. And the founder said, so Sarah, should I just talk to you? And honest, Sarah was like, well, I think you should talk to three firms. I like uh, you with a sword. A more than sword. Like a bowl of fruit or something. Or a cannon, like, you know, given my name. Like I could yeah. just. I like it better with a gun. A, yeah. No, I'm not gun. Not pro really? gun. No, 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 we didn't get oh, to that. Okay. We'll um, get to that in the fifth segment <laughs> on this two-part <laughs> Grand Slam opening uh, season four. Yeah. So I think, yeah, that you should always talk to a couple people. Like, you know how to shoot a gun? Have you ever held I have a gun? Done, I have done skeet shooting. I think all women specifically, should know how to use a firearm, and they should own one. I can change a tire. That's great. My dad to, was insistent that his daughter change tires. I, I think uh, specifically because of the violence towards women in society and the uh, the disproportionate nature of it for men and the fact that uh, just on a physical basis, men are you know bigger uh, in almost all cases and more aggressive uh, and targeting women specifically. All women not only should know how to use a gun, they should own one. I think we should just get rid of all of them, and then this would That's be. A the, I would. I would be fine with that. But since that will never happen in our lifetime, or any of our children's 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 lifetime in America, because of the Second Amendment, that will never happen. Then it, women are obligated to know how to use a firearm and own one. Isn't that crazy? To your really? daughter. One hundred percent. Make sure not only am I giving her a gun. I hope to meet her. I'm I'll giving her try fifty not caliber on the top of her Tesla. Try not to upset her. Wow. That's, no, I mean, that's I, a quote. Somebody hops the fence. You're on your own, you know, and cops are not going to be there for 10 to Powers 20 of minutes. persuasion, you think that's not going to work? Not going to work if somebody is looking to attack you, no. And I think all women should take self-defense classes, number one, because when I taught self-defense classes in New York 30 years, 20 years ago. You taught them? Yeah, and uh, 
people, women, I would say four out of five women didn't know how to throw a punch or make a fist. So 80, per, show me your, you ever throw a punch? I mean, I, I've done it, yes, yeah. in, a, in a boxing class. Perfect. We were looking at investing in a company. Perfect. Like if boxing class, great. Um, because when I would do this with people, um, it would be all kids didn't know how to throw a punch. And then women still didn't know how to throw a punch. Boys would learn because they would get in fights and they were encouraged to get in fights. Um, they'd put their thumb inside their fist. No. And then they would punch with the front of this their... This way, right? That's it. And you're hitting those two knuckles right here. And if you punch the way I just showed you, you're breaking your thumb and or another finger and it's having no power. But the way you did it is actually where the power is, those first two knuckles. Perfect. All right, don't mess with me. Anyway, where were we? <laughs> we were uh, talking about preempting deals. Preempting deals. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like if you're preempting, if you're the founder, it's like you're getting on the, I just thought, I was trying to think of the right analogy. I was like, it's kind of like when you get on the ski lift and it's like, yeah, those are double diamonds up there. And you're like, well, I did a diamond. And you're like, okay, but just so you know, when you get off this lift, it's a double. It's a double. And it might be slightly different than the, the diamond you did. So when you take that preemptive funding now, like you've just, you've committed. And it turns out, I mean, it's extremely hard to get to one million in ARR, but like getting to 20, I mean, you're really, the, the, it's harder to grow at the same percentage when the base gets larger. Yeah. And it's, Math is, a, is tough that way. The other thing is, I don't know if you find this, there are very few founders, I think, who can handle the distraction of having a large amount of money in their bank account. It almost universally screws with founders' heads. We've, we've spent, a, we spent a lot of time in our morning meetings talking about that. Um, because How do you address it? How do you uh, mitigate against it? I think you, the two ways we've done it are one, to try to understand the psychology of the person, what motivates this person, why are they building this business? Um, and then two is to have an honest conversation. So we have had a lot of our portfolio companies have inbound interest from other firms. Evaluations were like, holy smokes. And you say like, okay, if you take this money, I mean, I'm on a board of a company and we had this discussion with the founder and said, okay, like this is, if you want to work with this company, like you don't need the money. Let's be very clear about that. Yep. But if you do and you want to take it because you want their help and um, here's how what are we going to spend? Like let's commit to a plan of how much cash we need to execute our plan. If the plan changes, tell me that and how much cash. But you just need to have a plan that they commit to. So you have to be very thoughtful. Very, and explicit. Because every founder is, I mean, most are very well-intentioned and they're not trying, but it's easy to say like, oh, I just raised $40 million. So like, oh, we'll get the bigger office. That's how it shows up often first. Yeah. And oh, I always say it's the reception desk. When the founder is in a meeting looking at the designs of the reception area, that's when you know the company's fucked. All right. Noted. And I'm just like, noted. whoa, 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 whoa. This reception desk, like literally you're figuring out like how to have the swooping desk and the what the emotional feeling is in the lobby, this means nothing. Like, what is on the roadmap? You know, landing span. What, let's this talk about the customer. This very efficient. I should just go in and be like, have you been uh, discussing your entry? Oh, my Lord. When they're, when I, I've had founders in, like, like I, I can't meet it because I'm, I'm in meetings with the architects all day. It's like, you're in meetings with the architects? Like, is there a COO or a culture person who can do this and just tell you this is what we're doing? Like, it's just the moment of. Interesting. Yeah. But I'm very prone to design-focused founders, but I like it when it's on their product, maybe less, Correct. more so than Correct. their office. I mean, or if, you know, it's reasonable to spend a couple of hours, but when I see them getting obsessed about it, and that's what happens, or they're, being, or they're talking about the chairs, or they're talking about the offsite, and it's just, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, like, they get too obsessed with Keep those the things. the core things the core things. Yeah. The I, main things, the main things. Main things, um, the uh, main things. You, you mentioned India earlier. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on the opportunity internationally? India and China specifically are places where venture firms are opening office, 
how does index look at those two markets? Are you opportunistic? Are you active? I am very bullish from a macro perspective, um, obviously about China, where I think there is more venture actually being invested this year than yeah. in the US. Um, and firms have obviously done very well. And similarly about India. I think the question with India, where I actually opened Capital G's office there uh, or worked on it, um, is a question of timing. Like you're certainly seeing, you've seen Flipkart, like you've seen large companies being built, but how are there enough people to sustain as a market large enough of people who can buy things online yeah. to create the businesses that venture capitalists are the size returns we're looking for? So I think India is very much a timing question. I think for index, we, you know, we're originally in Europe. We're now in the US. There's so much opportunity right now in those two geographies. I, we're all very adamant about serving those founders. Um, so we're very focused on those geos, but I'm, we're open minded, right? Like I yeah. do. I have, you know, company. We have some in Australia. We have some Australia's in amazing. We have Latin five America. investments oh, in Australia really? now. Yeah. Well, I mean, Atlassian. Atlassian and Canva are yeah. leading the charge there. And when you think about what having two big unicorns like that does to the psyche of the other entrepreneurs there, I mean, listen, it's a it's a form of penal colony. Like people are coming to it with a. I think the spirit of them is like pretty. They're pretty rebellious uh, and they're very self possessed. Which, if you're a founder, those are two of the qualities I look for, like a little rebel, a little rebellious and self-possessed and like you're going to change the world, good. Yeah. And they want to build companies that are bigger than the, they can't build an Australian company, what's it, 30, 40 million people? Like you're not building a big business just on Australian companies. Right. So you're automatically looking outside of your country as opposed to Japan and Germany where a lot of the founders I meet from those countries are like, got enough, 100 million people speaking our language, we're good. We're just going to work with them. That's a big enough TAM for us. Um, when you look at Europe, how do you break down the different regions um, in countries because obviously some countries are not producing um, you know unicorns per million people at the rate of you know Sweden right you know what we're excited about is there's a lot more geographies in Europe that are interesting right I mean we, we talked about the Nordics historically yeah. France has been interesting I think is increasingly interesting they have a lot of great AI. France is interesting France is interesting you're kidding the place Plus where tech. you have to go to France this is the place where you have to go to the government to fire one of your employees so, and those laws w may change. Macron is talking about it. Really? Yes. I like and that. they've actually just, we've been working, Index in Europe has been working on changing stock option grants to employees. And Macron just uh, mentioned that they were going to do that in France to get, be able to give, you're very much in line with your proposal. So I right. do think, and, but not only France. They got rid of the wealth tax too. I mean, they lost your rod de Perdue and I think that was like, the, <laughs> that was the, yeah. But they, but not only, so France, I think we think has been interesting for a long time, but Romania. You know, like you have UiPath, a great business that's come out of Romania. So it's even more countries. We're seeing founders from broader and broader geos. Portugal, I saw all over. So open mind about Europe. But I think we'll stay, probably stay out of India and China for the near term. Is it the reg, you know, I, I'm a little obsessed with the regulatory environments and how they sort of slow down founders in Europe. Um, uh, but you do see this like incredible Nordic, you know, dominance like what is it, 11 unicorns now or something and uh, you know in a very short period of time like in a decade what why do you think it is that they've broken out and other people haven't the nordics yeah i think they i mean i think a lot of it is the great I've companies that you mentioned well nokia i mean you have some really large businesses that have uh, spun out a lot of great companies and i think success begets success in this ecosystem right, right yeah. so you know it was semiconductors in silicon valley originally so i think you had those great companies they spun out there's a lot of great talent and i do think a lot of the social benefits that they have in these countries like help people make the decision to found a company so it's always a confluence of effects but they've had the benefits for a long time so it's not fair to say that you know in the last decade all of a sudden that changed yeah. But um, I do think it's a lot of having a Spotify, 
um, or, you know, King or Supercell, some of these great companies signal to people there's a path. I think that's exactly what it is. I think you nailed it because if you can see it, you can be it. Like, and, and this is one of the reasons why, you know, everything from seeing more female VCs or people of color, when, when people see it, uh, then they can be it. Like, it's like, oh, I, I know somebody who worked at Spotify. I know somebody who worked at Klarna. I know somebody who worked at Spotify and Klarna, just like we all know people who worked at, you know, Microsoft, then Google, then Facebook, you know, like Sheryl Sandberg. Like, yeah, she's at Google, she's at Facebook, what next? Like, when you can see that repeating pattern. Can I share my favorite story on this signaling? Yeah. At Obama's inauguration, I was standing next to this gentleman, African-American, and he had his kids on his son on his shoulder. And now and Obama started speaking. And now he said, now you have no excuse. Yeah. And wow. it was just this like, Boom. now it's possible for you. Yeah. And that was like a pretty, I mean, pretty powerful. This is why I really moment. was so heart crestfallen, just completely heartbroken about Hillary not winning. I mean, it, I went with my daughter and she filled out the form for me. And it's like, and then we get this, right? It's just, and I was talking to my daughter about writing for Mike Bloomberg. And she said, I thought we're voting for a woman. And I was like. The right woman. No, I, li I love her question. You should vote I mean, that's literally her. And I because like, she you know, was a, I wouldn't vote for someone because she was a woman. Right. But from her perspective, like she was so upset about Hillary not getting in. And she's like, I thought we're voting for a woman, dad. And I was like, you know, I, I'm voting for the person I think is most qualified in this cohort which I believe is this person, but let's talk about it. Let's go through each of their positions because I could be wrong. And uh, I'm going to oh, let her vote Good with dad. Me. Well, I'm trying. <laughs> that sounds pretty great. I think we're getting there. All right, listen, I've kept you for far, far uh, longer than you uh, yeah, agreed to. So um, just in wrapping up here, uh, atheism, religion, rank your top three religions in terms of how loathsome they are. And then let's get right to abortion and uh, we haven't planning. covered. Wait, but what, I didn't even get to talk about the things that I want to invest in. Yeah, can I? We're going to make this the clip <laughs> that we share, and I'll make it part of my intro of what you're interested in, and we're going to blow this clip out. Literally in my cold open, I will put what you invest in. So it made it worthwhile here, and you get some deal flow. Oh, I'm having the best time. <laughs> um, no, I'm having the best time. Okay, um, me too, actually. So the things that I am most passionate about, as is obvious, is the future of work. Um, and specifically, so there are three parts of that that I'm spending time on right now. One is the next generation productivity tools. So we have Slack and Zoom. And I think there's a whole generation of tools that are being, that are designed first, that are inherently collaborative. And I think you're seeing Microsoft Office, Adobe, and Atlassian Suite become unbundled. So I'm very excited about investing. Isn't that interesting how yeah. everybody thought, oh, just hear one login, get a collection of things. And they're like, yeah, you know, that's really easy, but I'd rather do it the hard way and have the best. Yeah. So I want to do Slack, Airtable. Notion. Notion. And it's like, but Google Docs has all of this. And it's like, yeah, nah, nah. I'd rather log in three different times. And you're like, really? Yeah. Fascinating. I think it's because the developers, like our individuals are choosing. It's not being purchased centrally. So like the bottom up buying has been a big part of that. And also because you can now integrate between the products. Like Zapier it, makes you There happier. you go. This is so great. There's, I love Zapier's uh, a sponsor of the pod, but. Oh, thank uh, you, I Wade. Love, oh, I you appreciate in that. No, but I'd love to be. Well, uh, wait, are you an investor in Zapier? No, no? but I uh, love but the Wade's company. been on the pod. I forgot what episode, but Wade was on the pod. We gotta get back on the he's pod. Like he's like the. Is he coming back on in two weeks? He right? is. Yeah. We'll tell him I say hi. Yeah. But he's, and he had built a remote team originally. Yeah. But I think that genuinely has made it possible for people to use these and then share data between them. It's amazing. Like when he started that company, and also in fairness, if this and that, like people were like, mm -hmm. well, that's a goof. Like that's not a business. That's like middleware. It's like nobody's going to pay for that. And now it's like literally people in their job descriptions yeah. are like, 
Zapier, if this, then that, understand integration, no code, et cetera. So you love this space of remote that. work because why, why is remote work so important? Why do you think that's such a big trend? Is I it think, generational? Is it? So I, I fear it's been a little bit overplayed at the moment. Okay. Um, I think about it more overhyped, yeah. I think for me, it's much more about so much about how we work is changing. Like we're doing flexible jobs to our discussion on gigs. We're working remotely. So I think there's many things that contribute to a Slack or a Zoom being even more valuable. But they're still valuable in the traditional enterprise. They're valuable in a distributed team. So it's it's that market is enormous. And I'm interested in tools for all of them, not just for the remote segment. Yeah. But I think it's because talent is from everywhere. And technology is enabling us to have people, great people who work for us in Helsinki and Bogota. Yeah, and you just think about how broken, when things break in society, it creates these opportunities. And if, if real estate and transportation were really robust and we had solved those problems in American major cities, uh, we probably wouldn't even be talking about remote because you'd be like, well, no, you need to come to the office and just get a house as close to the office as possible and reduce your commute. And it's like, not possible anymore right. in a lot of cities. And the I commute remember. distance is correlated with depression, domestic violence, suicide, uh, happiness. It's God. it's actually really dark. I, I looked it up online because I was actually had this thesis about it years ago. And it's it's really scary how long commutes uh, equal worse life. Oh, well, having done it for a year at Google, I can, I can understand. Well, it's so bizarre. We have people who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year living in San Francisco. It's not a great city to live in, put that aside. And then commuting down to a wonderful, beautiful, bucolic, you know, Cupertino mountain view where it's gorgeous, but they can't afford to live or they choose not to for 75 minutes at each way. Yeah. What was your commute? Those are good days. It was at least an hour and a half each way. So you were a, an elite white collar executive in the top 2% of society spending three hours commuting. Mm -hmm. I spent three hours commuting. What was wrong with your decision making that you just didn't live near? I really Google? love cities. And I love wow. the diversity yeah. and the like all the positive externalities about being around yeah. a diverse set of people. And I was willing to pay for that, you know, three hours every day of my life. How long did you do it for? A little over a year, and thank God, Capital yeah. G moved to the city. You lasted a year. Well, they I, moved. I don't know how long I would have lasted. They wouldn't have, yeah. I, I think it's become this incredible limiting factor for Facebook and other places. But I think Facebook now is getting an office in the city. They took one of these tall skyrises or half of it or something. But I don't know what people were forcing people onto these buses. I know. It's, it's well, they thought they didn't have to move, and now I think because all the startups are here, and they, they can recruit the engineers away from the big companies, the big companies have also come. Yeah. Um, it's so dystopian, like three hours a day on a bus. I know. Well, a lot of people in the world do it, but you're right, it's irrational when you have the choice. They usually don't have the choice. They don't, yeah, th and that's my point. It's like, the choice, but it does. Okay, so what other categories? You got the so my other, so, but that one, my, the new thing I'm thinking about in that world is intelligent productivity. So how do we leverage uh, AI to actually help us focus in our tools? Example. Right? It, within Slack. So Sarah, you're spending a lot of time on this particular content. Why don't I prioritize that for you? Uh. Um, so I actually invested in a company called Quill. I love the series. A. Oh yeah, I know about this one. Do you know Tell Ludwig? Tell everybody what they do, yeah. Um, so Ludwig was the creative director at Stripe. Um, and to my whole thesis on there being kind of these design first, best product wins in this category. Uh, he's a very talented designer with an interesting vision. And his point of view was to build a product that actually is designed how we authentically communicate. And it will leverage AI to help us prioritize the things that matter. So I think we've all learned kind of this complex communication in Google, like, grocery store open hours, like I've learned to query. Yeah. And um, 
Quill will actually meet us where we are and how we authentically communicate to get the highest ROI on our communication within an enterprise. So very excited about that. Um, so intelligent productivity is one area. Um, and then another, I would just call it liberate the data. So a lot of people are interested in AI. Every enterprise wants to be adopting it like it used to be said about the cloud. But so much of it is the data is not in a place where it can actually be liberated to do right. anything helpful. So the constraint is really on the data side. There's a whole series of companies that um, I'm looking at investing in that basically make that possible. So yeah. new ETL tools, a whole series of new... What's ETL? Um, extract, transform, load. Oh, wow. So to basically to make data pipelines available. Oh. So I think you're going to be looking for like a whole... There'll be a whole new set of those businesses. Yeah, that makes total sense. Because uh, now if you need to get data, you got to talk to some data scientist or some developer. And then by the time you ask for it, they've got a long list of people who are asking for stuff. And then it's not in the format you need. You can't use it. You forget you asked for it. And people just need to be able to go direct to your looker experience. So Exactly. I think the next, we talked about this with BI people. I think the business intelligence folks, now there's going to be data scientists. And like what tools exist for them to share their analysis and make it more interesting. Everybody others. at some point is going to be able to do BI. Everybody's yes. going to be able to do this data analysis. Citizen, citizen BI person. No, it's democratizing access to all these things that used to be a specialist. And now it's tools to kind of put it in the hands of everybody. Um, and that kind of relates to the last one, which is, Automation. Mm. Um, so a company I invested in called Instabase is actually doing business process automation. So there used to be a lot of people in the loop doing things that now algorithms can do for us, mm. like underwriting a loan, for example. So I think there's like deep business process automation and there's also the lighter workflow automations, the kind of low, what is called low code, no code. Um, I love this no code movement because it's just the, the ability for founders to you know, Y Comedy was famous for saying, you can't have a tech, if you don't have a technical co-founder, you failed the first test, so you can't come. Or if you're not a technical co-founder who can successfully apply and conceive of a business, you failed the first test. And now it's like, well, if you and I were not coders, but we were hustlers and we had some insight into a market, we can actually make our 1.0 ourselves with some, you know, bubble, Webflow, Zapier, Slack combination, uh, Squarespace, like just whip it all together and, and be there and done. Uh, and get to our first 100 customers before we hire a developer. Which is beautiful in that the barriers to starting a business are much lower, but I also think it makes it much harder to be defensible. Because if you and I can do that and it's easy for us to do, then, you know, Tom and, you know, Arvind, Jane, you know. Jane can also do that. And so I think there's a little bit of, please yes. Be, please be careful with the, the names of, uh, we have to be gender... Gender, gender parody? Yeah, we have to have gender parody. So okay. Jack Nithia. and Jill. <laughs> Yeah, Nithya and Joe. Um, but, you know, that really is, it's easy for us. It could also be easy for them. So I think as an investor, you're saying it's way harder to find something defensible. I love that, though, because if you give more kids a basketball around the world, like the chances of finding a Michael Jordan go up, and now you just look at the NBA and how many international players they are that are doing so well, it's because in the 80s and 90s, they just said, David Stern said, let's make this an international game. Let's play some games overseas. Let's send our players overseas. Let's sign autographs overseas. And now they just have su such an amazing product on the floor because so many more people picked up a basketball. So many more people pick up, uh, you know, Squarespace and Shopify and Zapier and build stuff. You know, we'll find more, you know, uh, Travis's or, you know, Elon's or and whoever. from Kenya. Yeah, I mean, it, it, literally the... The pitches I'm getting from Africa now are becoming so, like, it just in, I'm talking about like a two-year period, you know, the businesses were very, like, service-based businesses, consulting firms, and now it's like, oh, yeah, no, we're starting an enterprise company, and it's, you know, like, they actually know how to speak the entire language because yeah. they're watching videos on YouTube 
of two investors talking about what they invest in and then two founders in a growth podcast and a design podcast and this you know stuff and they just can build their own version of what should exist in the world like notion those guys moved to kyoto well, I've been spent some time in Kyoto rethinking the product. That's right. That's right. And now they're back here. They're back here. They're back here. The founder, I, the founder wanted me to have like his VP or something on the podcast. I was like, yeah, no, that's like a sales thing. I want the founder to come on, but he's... You want Ivan to come on? Well, I can ask. You, we can can try. ask him because I think he's a little podcast shy. I just let him know that it went great and we talked about... It's all just his political of... views that are going to... He needs to have a view no. on guns and... No, I'm just teasing. All right, listen. We could talk for hours and we have. Uh, we're off to a great start. Uh, if people want to contact you, I'm assuming first name and index ventures or something like that. That works. is my name. There you go. Uh, and uh, you invest Series A typically or seed Series A or Series A, Series B? Series A, seed to Series H, any of them. Got it. Um, and we didn't get to the type of founders you like to work with on a personality basis, but just what do you believe there's a personality type that works well or do you believe there's a personality type that works well with you? For me, yeah. yes. Independent thinking. So I love um, very contrarian, independent thinking, curious, and thoughtful people. Yeah, clearly based on this conversation, also quick. Uh, well, this is one for the ages. Uh, this is going to be one of the <laughs> top podcasts of the year for sure, and we're already in just January oh, of 2020. Wow. I've got all, this is a lot of work to retain it for that long. Well, I mean, most people... I should have done this December 30th, I would have, yeah. if I had known. Well, you know, one of the things is, like, if you are in the position we're in where we write checks for a living. Sometimes being honest and talking about stuff, people feel like maybe I shouldn't talk about all these issues. And it's actually the wrong approach to life in general. Because as you learned from Larry Summers, when you have a position, even if you're wrong or it needs to evolve, at least you stated a position well and Larry Summers could appreciate it. That's what being a great investor is, is being able to debate these things. And it's clear I'm to me. I'm wrong all the time. One of the best things about being wrong is you can very quickly Learn. figure out yeah, you learn so quick when you're wrong and you get corrected by somebody, you know, and, they, and you're like, oh, thank you. I, actually, I think it's kind of the best part of our job as investors is to sit in a room with people smarter and more driven than us who want to change the world, yep. who tell us what our blind spots and what, how we're wrong. And you're like, right, please keep talking by all means. All right, Sarah Cannon, you've been great on the program. Uh, and, uh, the Obama impersonation is coming. I'm waiting for it. I don't have an Obama. I've got. But next time. I got Clinton and I got Trump. I got. I just got to fill in there. Uh, all right. Uh, thanks to the. Uh, thanks to uh, Master Nick and Sir Charles, uh, MK, uh, ringing the register. Uh, Jackie Ashley Press holding it down for me. Um, uh, Venture side, and all our LPs and sponsors of the podcast. We couldn't do it without you. And we'll see you all next time on Angel Podcast. Uh-huh.